Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So on today's show, well, you know, there's something funny about somebody who has a name that fits their, you know, their profession. So you know, if you've got a dentist named Dr. Drill, that's not a real example, except somewhere there is a dentist named Dr. Drill. And so that's kind of funny. And it's also called nominative determinism. And it's either a very serious concept that really can be mined for meaning, or it's just something that's kind of amusing. (laughs) And I can tell you that at every major newspaper, until probably the digital age, there was somebody who kept a list of all those kinds of names. And it was like a typed list that had to be updated periodically. But it's just the kind of thing that some of us, anyway, are very much drawn to, and maybe that will turn out to be you. That's the wonderful Nick Drake meditating with us about why we are the things we are. Why do we become who or what we are? And one possible reason for that might be our name. Um, I knew for quite a while the medical chief medical examiner of Connecticut, the person who did autopsies. Uh, he was a very, very nice man, passed away a, a while back. His name was Wayne Carver. Um uh, in the 1980s, not everybody in the world was doing yoga. Yoga was really kind of a rather niche thing. Uh, and if you were taking yoga classes and perhaps even studying to be a yoga teacher anywhere in central Connecticut, your your teacher was apt to be uh, a woman in her 70s named Ruth Bender. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of funny, right? I mean, it's funny if somebody's name fits their occupation. Unless there's something wrong with you, it should be only funny once, right? It's funny once that it's Wayne Carver, and then you get to know Wayne, and he's a person, and that's the end of that. But this idea has been around for a really long time. It goes back to antiquity uh, in the play Persa. I'm laughing because my six years of Latin are finally coming in handy. But um, in the play Persa by Plautus, uh, the slave Toxilus lures his owner, Dordalus, to buy an expensive slave girl named Lucris, which more or less translates to prophets. 
and Toxilis says, Nomen aque omen quantivis iam es preti. The name and the omen are worth any price. That kind of got condensed over time to nomen est omen. The, the name is a prediction. And, and since that time, there have been all kinds of different versions and terms for that idea. Uh, that, in fact, what you wind up doing and your name may occasionally have something in common. Now, sometimes it has something in common in kind of a reverse way uh, that's also kind of funny. But there have been um, efforts over the years, particularly, this is like a newspaper thing, like old newspaper guys. I used to be an old newspaper guy. There's always somebody in the newsroom who's keeping track of this kind of stuff. Uh, Franklin, Franklin P. Adams, FPA, a uh, famous newspaper columnist in the 20s and 30s, would ask readers to write in with these ideas to the New York world. Um, yeah, he called them aptronyms. It's aptonyms is like the other version of it that comes from yet another newspaper columnist, Gene Weingarten at the Washington Post. Um, the San Francisco Chronicle legendary columnist Herb Cain called them name freaks. Uh, he also collected them and published them. I mean, there's just so many different uh, examples uh, of terms like this. Uh, in the play Jumpers, Sir Tom Stoppard uses the term cognomen syndrome. Uh, and, th- and the term that we're going to use today, nominative determinism, uh, is uh, traceable at least to, to a uh, column in the British magazine, New Scientist. And I'm also going to go out on, on a limb here and say that I think British people like these things more than anybody else. Uh, I'm a big fan of a British uh, radio show slash podcast uh, hosted by the British comedian Frank Skinner. And there is a regular pause in their busy day if if some example of nominative, nominative determinism uh, comes up and they use that term. Uh, you know, if you think about all the characters of Dickens who have names that kind of fit them and stuff like that, it just – it seems as though it's of special appeal to them. And of course – uh, you know, even talking about the Romans, I start thinking about Nautius Maximus and some of the other names from Life of Brian that are less usable on the radio. And I realize the people in Monty Python, they definitely carried this forward to its absolute most absurd conclusion. Cat, this is where we're going to play B2. Morning, I'm Bounder of Adventure. Hello, I'm Smoke Too Much. Well, you'd better cut down a little then. I'm sorry? You'd better cut down a little then. Oh, I see. Smoke too much, so I'd better cut down a little then. Yes. I bet you get people making jokes about your name all the time, eh? No, I've never noticed it before. So here to throw, shed some light on that, both for us and uh, a person named Smoke Too Much, apparently, is Brett Pelham, a professor of psychology at Montgomery College. Uh, he has made a, quite an extensive study of this whole question of nominative determinism. So first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. It's been delightful. I have learned things already from the show that I did not know because I took Latin for only three weeks. Yeah, no, so thank you. You, you. you definitely need the, the whole six years that I did. Um, so <laughs> might might have been just been five. I think it was five. So um, so we should say that first of all, this does have a have its roots in semi antiquity, at least going back to the time when Coopers, you know, people named Cooper were barrel makers. Uh, you, yep. had, you had carpenters, you had smiths, you had masons, uh, and if you you were Roger the Shrubber, it was pretty easy to drop out the the, and suddenly you were Roger Shrubber. So, right. so that's not really how it works today, but, but there is a sort of pattern, a, a well-worn path there. Your last name and your trade might be the same thing. Right. In fact, the, the very names that you mentioned, I think all of them, uh, except for Cooper, because Coopers weren't working much anymore. They didn't make many barrels in 1940. 
but those other occupations you mentioned are common male occupations. You know, others, baker, butcher, uh, miner, mason, painter. I did a study about that I published about eight years ago with Mauricio Carvalho, where we looked at every male name that is an occupation with any meaningful frequency. So we got rid of the shoemakers because there are only 11 of them in, in 1940, <laughs> but you know, bakers, butchers, barbers, et cetera. And for every single occupation we looked at with millions of data points, we saw that people were overrepresented in those occupations if it was their name. And not because of magic or astrology or anything like it, but because people like their names, they're classically conditioned by loving parents to like them. And if I like my name, I'm going to gravitate toward anything that resembles my name. That's the basic theory is right. Pavlovian conditioning. So, right. So, um, so yeah, it's predicated there. I mean, it's a fascinating idea that, you know, because you hear your name a lot, uh, and hopefully you have positive <laughs> associations with it unless it's shouted at you constantly. Although I will say that I, I had did uh, talk to a friend of ours, uh, somebody who's on the show a, a lot, a composer named Matt Sargent, who um, had, his, I believe his father was commander sergeant and his grandfather was private sergeant. And that was screamed at him a lot, private sergeant. I think that, wow. was, like not, that was like not a good name to have. Um, <laughs> so... So, yeah, so I'm going to play a little clip for you. This is about five minutes long. I'm going to have you react to it because I tried your, I tried your theory out uh, on uh, a man named David Byrd. Uh, and awesome. he's sort of the reason that I decided to do this whole episode was because uh, I, I become fond of a particular type of bird feeder. And it turns out the company has a consulting ornithologist uh, for their bird feeders. Uh, and his name is David Byrd. And I thought, ah. Nominative determinism. We have to do that show. Awesome. So let's hear a little bit of David Byrd. I think I tried out one of your ideas on him, your, the very idea you just articulated. Let's see what he did with it. This is A2, Cat. Well, you know, I would love to tell your listeners that I came out of the womb with a pair of binoculars in my hand, and my first species was a rock pigeon on the, on the window ledge outside the hospital ward, but that would be totally untrue. Really, I'm sorry to disappoint folks, but I do not think my last name had anything to do with my total uh, bird-related career, but here's how it did get started. Between the ages of 10 and 15, while living in Toronto, I really got interested in wildlife. I was also interested in uh, girls and money and hot cars. So I wanted to be a falconer and, uh, and have a trained hawk in the house, but my mother basically nicks that, saying you don't have any dangerous birds that can slice their feces five feet in the air with a foul smell. So that ended that kind of thing. And so when I went to the guidance counselor to seek a career out, I did not go into ornithology or wildlife right away. I asked him, I said, could I make a lot of money as a wildlife biologist? And he said, no, you can't. He had been one himself before. He says, you'll enjoy your job, but you won't make any money. So I went to my second love, which was hot cars, and I decided to go. And I got into university at engineering school, become an automotive engineer and design racing cars so I could have girls, money, and hot cars and drive them. And I was only there for about a month, and I absolutely hated the whole idea of being an engineer. I had no brains for it or whatever. And so a year later, I signed up for a zoology program at University of Guelph, about 20 minutes away. And there, my bird of prey interest came back, partly because they were in trouble, because of uh, they were disappearing through the, the breakage of their eggshells and so on. And uh, I got really, really interested in, in these birds of prey. 
And then I went to McGill University as a grad student, did my master's, my PhD, stayed on as a professor and studied birds of prey for the rest of my life, becoming one of the top 10 guys in the world, I suppose, at one point. And that is how I got into birds. But that's not the end of the story, because that's birds of prey. What happened next is I used to write a column in the Montreal Gazette for 28 years on called Bird's Eye View, all about birds. But I was still a bird of prey nut. Um, so I went to this uh, conference in uh, Arizona, and I saw an Anna's hummingbird doing a wonderful display in the air with like a neon pink jewel in the air. And I came back after seeing that and said, I don't want to be a raptor bigot anymore. I want to like all birds, pigeons, house sparrows, the whole shooting match. And so since then, I've now written columns and magazines about birds. I still do today, work for Brome, and even uh, using drones to study birds. So that's kind of the story of my career, how it all got started, but not because I was named bird. So, yeah, so one of our other guests, Brett Pelham, who has a background in psychology, would mm -hmm. probably say about you, well, he's not aware of this necessarily at a conscious level, but people have been saying bird to him his entire life, and he has pleasant associations with it, and ultimately he has been conditioned. He's been reinforced his entire life <laughs> by the whole idea of birds, and that's his name. And so even if he thinks that he's made this conscious choice to go on this long and winding road that's full you know, of hot cars, he was going to be an well, ornithologist. He just didn't know it. I got called all sorts of bad names when I was with the last name Bird. I got called Bird Brain, which actually is not an insult because birds are quite smart. And I also got called Bird Turd, if I can use that word on, on the line. But I think the funniest joke that someone ever told me was uh, they told me to take off and go and flock away and go and poop on somebody's windshield. That was the most unique thing I ever got told. But I, I, I really can't agree with this. I, I remember, though, um, we were seeing a psychologist one time, my wife and I, marital problems, very many, 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 many years ago. And he suggested strongly that the reason I got into birds is because my dad was in the Air Force. And, and he was assuming my dad was a pilot, but my dad did never, never flew uh, planes. He worked on the, on the uh, skins of them and so on. But I'm a scientist and I would have to disagree with this uh, psychologist if he thinks that was something that was sort of uh, suggested to me um, in a rather subtle way. I, I, I wouldn't agree. But anyway. So let me just ask you one last thing. So, okay, let's say that you're right. The, the name didn't really have anything to do with the choice of career. It could have just yeah. as easily been hot cars or something else. But it must have some kind of implications now that you are, oh. are an ornithologist and your name is Bird. Just say a little bit what it's like to yeah. just go through life with that particular kind of parallelism. Yeah. Well, I couldn't be luckier to have a last name like that, but I remember being at a uh, giving a talk to the Cape May Bird Festival, and this guy named Pete Dunn, a very well-known one of the top birders in North America at the time, introduced me, and he, and he basically said um, about my last name that it was just dumb luck, and <laughs> and and nobody forgets a name like that. I, I'm spending my winters in a little tiny village, two villages in uh, Baja, Mexico, and I lead just for fun. I lead free Baja birding club bird walks, and because of that and because of my name being Dr. Bird, I'm a bit of a minor celebrity in these towns. Everybody knows who I am, even if they've never met me before. And so I feel very, very blessed to have a name like that. And, um, uh, you know, I'm working on a novel right now that has something to do with about eh, some things I know about as a wildlife biologist or whatever. And I'm not sure if I want to use my name. I don't know if I want to use David Bird or use something like Prof Bird and spell it B-Y-R-D-D -D or something like that. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that. 
All right, so uh, back to you, Brad Pelham. Obviously, he's in massive denial, massive denial. Uh, but I'd be interested to know what your, your thoughts are about David Byrd. Well, first of all, you articulated my position so well that I can't add much to it, but I would say the only way in which I would disagree, you can never say for sure why one person did one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you get samples of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and you show systematic patterns using data, not using anecdotes, anecdotes are fun, but they don't tell us anything for sure. But I've got millions of marriage records tens of thousands of birth records. I've record after record after record. I had the entire 1940 <laughs> census data at my disposal. And you just see over and over that people on average, it's not a big effect. If it were a big effect, it'd be folk wisdom. It's a modest effect most of the time. But for example, people are about 30% more likely to work as a painter if their last name is painter. That's based on the population, not the people in my county. So I get it that you can't say for sure that what Dr. Bird did. And I can't say for sure that I had my first child with a person whose last name was Poland, P-O-L-A-N, and I'm P-E-L-H-A-M. But I can tell you this much. We don't have much in common except for the similarity in our last names. So you can never say for sure, but on average this happens. And I also say this much. It's very clear to me that David does love his name, and that's awesome. And if he disliked his name, and there are some people who do, my theory would make the opposite prediction that they would actually gravitate away from things that resemble their names. But most people love their names, despite the fact that all of us get made fun of in middle school and elementary school and high school. We still love our names because our parents loved our names, for example. So... I don't know for sure why Dr. Bird became an, a, a person who studies birds, but I do know that on average, people gravitate toward things that resemble their names, their birthday numbers, their high school jersey numbers, really anything that is a part of their identity. Right. And I mean, I don't know why he became an ornithologist either, but one thing I think we would agree is that if it were the case that he were kind of associatively conditioned, he probably wouldn't be conscious of it. I mean, the whole idea uh, of that kind of con conditioning is it's so gradual, so nuanced, so granular that whatever kinds of uh, of preferences and presuppositions build up inside you, they, they do it very slowly, not in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I'm being conditioned to be an ornithologist. Absolutely. That's exactly how classical conditioning works. We're not aware of it as it happens. And it, it's pretty difficult to make it go away. That's why clinicians get paid $300 an hour uh, to condition people to deal with phobias, for example. So once you've got a conditioning process intact, it's very, it's possible, but it's very difficult to recondition it. So uh, I want to go back to the, to you and your wife and uh, in and also just sort of this whole other idea here, because when I think about nominative determinism, I do think about choice of work typically or, or things like that anyway. I hadn't really thought about the idea that people might gravitate towards one another because their names were somewhat similar. So tell me a little bit more about what is known about that. We've done, we actually started most of our work on either the choice of a city, like moving to, you know, Cape Breton Island, if your name is Brett, moving to Georgia or Virginia, if your name is Georgia or Virginia. But a lot of the work that John Jones did in his dissertation about 20 years ago 
was to look at close relationships. So he showed over and over that people overmarry other people whose last name starts with the same letter as their last name, and they dramatically overmarry other people whose last name is their exact last name. And we're pretty sure we can rule out people marrying their cousins. Uh, that's a little bit tricky to do, but we think we can. And we've shown that in cultures other than mainstream white American culture by showing it in a giant sample of Texas Latinos. So people overmarry other people, statistically speaking, if either their first name resembles uh, the person's first name or if their last name resembles it. So Smiths dramatically overmarry other Smiths. And we try to control for ethnic matching and age matching and other things that are alternate explanations. But those effects, especially with an exact match, are pretty large effects. They're not they're You can see them. They pop out at you from a data table. You can you can do the chi-square analysis if you want to or the logistic regression. But the numbers are obviously staring you in the face once you get tens of thousands of records. So, I mean, people get married for all kinds of reasons that are sometimes not good reasons. But I, I would think that that's, you know, I mean, if that's a, a subtle factor that creates those kinds of statistical disparities, I, I, it doesn't seem like a recipe for marital success. I mean, of all the things that should be influencing your choice, uh, the similarities of your two last names wouldn't seem to be a particularly adaptive way to proceed. That's a great question we have tried to address and we really just can't get the data. They're probably out there someplace. You would need to get people, you know, millions of marriage records and then follow them longitudinally to see if people named Christine who married Christopher or people named Carpenter who married another Carpenter, not their cousin, we hope, um, if they stayed together longer. Uh, it does sound like a wacky reason to do something. It's obviously purely conditioned, it's not rational, but it is something that people do love that they have in common. So I would say all else being equal, you should not only be attracted to that person or that place or that career, but you should stick with it longer, but we don't have those data. The only anecdote I know about is Kelly Hildebrandt <laughs> married Kelly Hildebrandt about 15 years ago, and that marriage lasted about three years. So not so great. So I wouldn't be at all surprised because it's not a great reason to get married if those marriages died more quickly. But we just don't have the data to know if they if they're doomed to failure, if they're average in their duration or if they do last longer, because that's one thing that you definitely have in common. We just don't have the data yet. Right. I mean, at least you would know that monogrammed towels would be an easier thing to work out, probably. <laughs> the, um, exactly. So I'm guessing also that, I mean, we just had a little trouble convincing Dr. David Byrd uh, that his name might have had anything to do with what he has spent his life doing. I'm guessing that kind of pushback isn't that unusual for you. I mean, you've got these massive uh, quantities of statistics where, you know, just through large numbers, it's very obvious that these patterns uh, are are there and that they persist. But I think it's human nature to reject that idea. Is that what you run into? Absolutely. There are two kind, well, there are two or three kinds of people, but the two I'll focus on most people like, oh my God, my name's John. My wife is Joan. We both have February eleventh as a birthday. Your theory is so valid. Thank you, Pavlov, for making that true for bringing us together. 
I'm not Pavlov. He's the, the Russian dude who did the original studies. It wasn't just um, it wasn't just I, dogs salivating. It was everything. Right. Really, yeah. Uh, yeah. It applied to all kinds of things. Then there is a substantial group of people, and there's usually reviewers see on my papers who say this is ridiculous. It's ludicrous. <laughs> there must be a confound. There must be a better explanation. Human beings are rational creatures. That'd be a crazy thing to do. So we, I've seen both camps of people a lot. And we've had to replicate many, many papers to address those very thoughtful critiques. Well, is it just age matching? Is it just ethnic matching? Is it just, is it just, is it just? And we've also done experiments in the laboratory to create implicit egotism that are, to me, pretty convincing that it's not just, you know, that more African-Americans than white Americans are named Jefferson or Washington. And of course, we know about ethnic matching and marriage. We've done everything we could to control for that by focusing within ethnic groups, for example. And we've done experiments. John did a couple in his dissertation, John Jones, that showed very clearly that you can make a person like another person a little bit more than usual if you pair that person's name with that other person or that person's jersey number or something that connects to that person. So... It's not a massive effect. It's not like it. It's not like the efficacy of the COVID vaccine. It's more like the efficacy of the the statin drugs that help people control their cholesterol a little bit. You know, the effect is not huge, but the average effect ranges from a five percent bias to an eighty percent bias in marriage, depending on exactly how much it looks like that person likes his or her name. Right. But the average marriage effect is a 6.5% to 8% matching effect if you look at people's birthday numbers, for example, and a bit bigger than that if you look at matched initials and much bigger than if you looked at exact matches of last names. Right. I, I just became aware while you were talking that my internal medicine doctor uh, is Dr. Arthur Ivermectin. And I, I, I had never noticed that before, but I should probably get a different doctor. Um, I also think there is something kind of hilarious about the fact that the one of the researchers who's, who's done some of the most impressive research into unusual name phenomena is Dr. John Jones. You know, it just sort of feels like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's like yes. sort of a generic name. Anyway, uh, yeah. you have been fascinating, uh, Brett Pelham, and very, very grateful for your time, professor of psychology at Montgomery College, one of the world's leading experts in nominative determinism. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about names some more. My name is My name is Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Would you love me more if my name were New York? There's also a country song. <laughs> There's a, actually a country song. I'm not making this up called Would You Love Me More? Or it goes, Would You Love Me More? If my name was Whiskey. Um, so those are questions we ask ourselves, though, right? What kind of impact does our name have uh, on our personal relationships, on our status in the world? Is it significant that the world's fastest sprinter uh, was named Usain Bolt, uh, that a professor of religion is named Terry Godlove, uh, that there was a professor of psychiatry named Dr. Jules Angst? Um, some of this will remain a mystery. Uh, and, and last names are things that you don't have that much choice about. First names are a kind of a different story. Uh, joining us now, Laura Wattenberg is a naming expert, author of The Baby Name Wizard and the creator of Numerology.com. Laura Wattenberg, welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. So there are people out there who are listening very raptly now because they uh, are going to have babies at some point and they are going to have to pick names. Uh, and I'm assuming that you would argue that this is not a casual choice that a name creates expectations. Can you tell us more about that, though? Names definitely create expectations. And I also would say that I think almost no parents view the choice casually. That's one reason that names are such a, a rich and fascinating topic. Everyone at a party always wants to talk about names because we know how much they convey. That one little string of letters can tell you something, not just about perhaps the gender or the ethnic background of a person, but perhaps about where they come from, how old they are. There's a lot of data and a lot of subtle signals packed into them, including, as Brett was talking about, factors that will draw us toward or away from other people. Yeah, you know, my name was very, I'm 68 years old. When I was growing up, I essentially never saw another person named Colin. Uh, it was just an unusual choice if you didn't live in the British Isles. 
Uh, there had been a famous, uh, I think, World War II flying ace named Colin Kelly, but people didn't really know that name. Now there's just Collins everywhere you look. Um, and and I, I, I've gone from having what I consider to be a very special and unusual name to kind of an annoyingly trendy one. Uh, but it isn't just trendiness, right? Can you just, just give me give an example or two of a name that has some kind of latent freightedness to it that might kind of affect how your life goes? Sure. I mean, even your name not only has become more common, but it's become more youthful and probably people pronounce it more easily now. Mm-hmm. So the name has definitely changed. But one thing we're seeing today is as parents look for more and more creative and fresh names to make an impact, they're choosing more names based on places or word names. And we're seeing really extreme examples of that. Like boys today are more likely to get aggressive sounding names like riot or savage or names of firearms. Parents are really putting a lot of their own values into a name and people will read that and react based on their own culture. Wow. I I just like, uh, first of all, I mean, I've known little kids who should be named danger or chaos, uh, but this is sort of carrying truth in labeling uh, a, a little bit far. Well, I want to hear more about that. But speaking of a name that might strike fear into someone's heart, although in this case unnecessarily, uh, I want you to hear a conversation that I had with one of the producers here at this radio station. She works on another very wonderful show called Where We Live. Uh, her name is Tess Terrible. Cat, this is B1. So, no, I did not make up this name. It is not my DJ or radio name. A lot of people do assume that. Like a lot of Italians and Italian families, uh, when my great-grandparents came to America, they went through Ellis Island. And this actually happens to quite a few Italian families. I know a lot of people have this story that our name was changed at Ellis Island. It used to be Terrible, and that is spelled T-E-R-R-I-B-I-L-E. And uh, they were told at Ellis Island by whoever was, you know, working there at the time that they had to change their name to have an American name now. And my great grandfather was both illiterate and he did not speak English. So I think there was just a lot of nodding and the rest is history. (laughs) History indeed. So, yeah, I, I, I do think I remember when you were hired and I remember seeing your name posted somewhere or something. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I love that name. But what does this mean? And the truth is, it doesn't really mean anything. But I'm assuming when people hear your name, it gins up a certain set of expectations. Can you say a little bit about how people react to the name? Sure. I mean, I I often have to repeat my name twice. Um, And, you know, after people kind of get over the initial shock, whether that means I have to, like, show them my physical driver's license to convince them it's it's truly my last name they want to know the origin story and then they have kind of some classic questions the joke i get a lot is is my middle name the so i'm like test the terrible i get that one a lot maybe 60 100 times a week or so (laughs) um and i also you know people want to know is it my married name which it is not it is my birth name and then they want to know what i'm going planning on doing if and when i get married if i'm going to be changing my name i'm not going to ask you any of those questions but i do want to know i mean are there instances where i don't know you're at the airport and you get paged or, you know, or I mean, it must be weird getting paged if, in fact, they paid you with your full name. I'm assuming heads may swivel around a little bit. Talk about that. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, myself and my, my family, we all kind of have these instances where our last name has kind of gotten in, us into trouble. My father became a Marine when he was just 17 years old. He was an orphan and didn't really have another place to go. And one of his stories of being at boot camp was the drill sergeant yelling, which one of you blankety blanks name is terrible. Um, you can fill in, <laughs> fill in the words there for yourself. Um, and then, I mean, I, I'll just say that, you know, first impressions kind of have to mean everything for me. My last name definitely, uh, you know, pay, makes an impression on people. And so having a last name like Terrible definitely influences my behavior in which I'm pretty much always on my best behavior. I am always way too polite, much more polite than I probably need to be. I almost always drive the speed limit. <laughs> Um, so I think it more influences me that way. And and because, you know, there's no forgetting a badly behaved woman named Terrible. Well, that's a kind of a burden, too, right? I mean, I'm tired enough of people going, do you play tennis? Uh, anytime I mention my name. But is there any part of you that's tempted just to change it to Smith or something and just like not have to have conversations anymore and not have to ask act nicer than you feel like acting? Is there <laughs> Is there a way in which that would free you up a little bit? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it would, but to understand like the Italian naming system, Italians take a lot of Italian families. We take incredibly, incredible, great pride in our names. Um, a lot of women and men are named after both of their grandparents, which that's part of my name. My full name is Teresa Jane. Those are both of my grandmothers. And then I have the last name Terrible. And so I actually have quite a lot of pride around having the, the last name Terrible. And I'm going to answer the question, even though you didn't ask it, but I have no plan to change my name, whether I become married one day or, or what have you. But I have a lot of pride in being test terrible. I've really learned to embrace and love the name. Yeah, I mean, it does give you a certain cachet. People don't forget that name very easily. The day you were hired, we all learned that name. And it's it's not like <laughs> we have to summon it to mind now. Anyway, if you want a name that's memorable, it's good to have a name that's, you know, memorable. Yeah, yeah, certainly is. And it's kind of, I mean, there's a little bit of a, I don't know how to, how to describe it, a little bit of a legacy with my last name. I am an only child. I don't have any living brothers or, or sisters. My dad was one of two children, and his brother actually did change his name. Frank Terrible is no more. He changed it to um, my great-grandmother's maiden name, and so his children don't have the last name. So really, the last name is going to probably die with me, and I don't know, you know, other than my parents and my, you know, my immediate family, I don't have any other relatives with this last name. So, you know, it's mine for ill or for good. <laughs> So, Laura, I'm just going to have you react to what you just heard here. Uh, it's probably not all that different from a lot of stories that you do here, but what did you hear in that story? That's a really tremendous example because that is an extreme and unusual name. And the, the alliteration with Tess is actually quite wonderful. Whenever you have a, a word name as a surname, alliterating gives it an extra almost storybook quality. It reminds me of, of Tess Trueheart in the old Dick Tracy comics. But I think her experience really speaks to how the biggest impact of our name is how 
it affects other people and what response they reflect back at us. It's almost like this little social microclimate that we carry through life wherever we go that influences all our interactions. Oh, I love the idea of it being a microclimate. And I think that's true, too. I mean, a lot of times, the like you heard me say when she was hired, the first thing you know about a person is their name quite frequently before you ever behold them, talk to them, experience them any other way. It, it's kind of the leading edge uh, and, and, and a microclimate as well. And I'm also- In fact, ahead, nowadays, yeah. I would, pardon me, I would, I would say that more and more we meet on a name-only basis. In the digital age, whether it's an email or a, na- uh, a first name on a Tinder profile or even an Uber pickup, that name is often the only piece of information people have. And so it can have an outsized effect. Oh, absolutely. Now, one thing that came up as we were having meetings about this show, one of the people who produces uh, shows for us uh, is named Jennifer LaRue. And she is a former publicist and kind of marketing person, particularly in the nonprofits and the arts and culture and stuff. And she says, you know, if you're dealing with somebody with that kind of a job, the the chance that they're named Jennifer is very high. Uh, now, that's an anecdotal observation based on absolutely zero research and a lot of living. And it might be due to the fact that from a certain age group, there was a preponderance of young women named Jennifer. Mike Dottie famously has a song called I Went to School with 27 Jennifers. Um, but I don't know. I, do you sort of see that? Is there a way in which a first name kind of can maybe fit into where you wind up in life? There definitely are differences in first name from profession to profession. But often it's not necessarily the name that you are given, but how you present yourself. So salespeople and politicians tend to use their nicknames all the time as a kind of shorthand to to sound friendly and approachable and make a connection with people. In fact, when uh, Michael Dukakis, as governor of Massachusetts, decided to run for president, that's when he became Mike, because he was trying to project that friendliness to a broader audience. Well, actually, now I can tell you a dirty secret about radio, not public radio, but I used to work in commercial radio, and I was one of the very few people on the air using my actual name. But you, if you listen to commercial radio, you're going to hear a lot of Paul Douglas and Mike Stevens and Doug Mitchell, uh, people who have names that are essentially for two first names. And there's a theory uh, um, in radio that that makes you more relatable, that you've got two first names. Uh, so people have double the chance to be on a first name basis with you or something like that. But that kind of goes to what you're talking about. Friendliness is actually a power quality that parents aren't looking for much today. Nicknames are out of fashion. Familiar classics are out of fashion as parents try to stand out more. But in fact, whether it is a a Tinder profile or or selling a car, a friendly, approachable nickname turns out to be the most effective approach. All right. So uh, we're going to have more. This is going to lead very well into our final segment here with Laura Wattenberg, a naming expert. Uh, So uh, we'll take a very quick break here. We'll come back and we'll do that thing.
sure you never miss the Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Tim Rasmussen, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. We are back. Uh, our technical producer today is Cat Pastor. We now have two people kind of in the studio who are both named Cat. We have Cat Shannon and Cat Pastor. Uh, make of that what you will. Uh, these are obviously shortening some names. The producer of this particular episode is Lily Tyson. That is not the name she was given on her planet, but we can't pronounce that name. With us is Laura Wattenberg, uh, a naming expert, author of The Baby Name Wizard, uh, and the creator of numerology.com. So before we segue quickly into sort of the current naming revolution, I want to sort of kind of revisit one idea and cat get ready to play a one uh so because i love that idea the phrase that you use laura about a name being a microclimate and if it's a microclimate it's with you at birth uh, you know, it's with you for your entire life. So uh, this is a message from a legendary, I think I, I'm not stretching to use this term, a legendary figure in the world of Connecticut, Connecticut Protestantism, uh, uh, the Reverend Davida Foy Crabtree. Uh, this is a story she told us about her name. I was born Davida Marion Foy. And if you translate that, it means beloved faith of Mary or in Mary. Is it any surprise I ended up being an ordained minister who's a feminist? <laughs> so there you go, Laura. I mean, I suppose, you know, once again, you 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 have a name that maybe you understand a little bit differently than other people, uh, but it, it can feel like a message to you. I think that when it comes to the, the derivations of names, the origins that you see in a traditional name dictionary, that to me is very much about the story that parents can tell their children, because that meaning, that origin doesn't come across to the people you meet every day. It's more of a private connection that we might not be able to see. So, you know, you were saying before that um, some of the more you know traditional names seem to be a little bit out of favor these days, and maybe nicknames are out of favor. So are we really seeing a lot of kids named Thor and Maverick and stuff like that? We are seeing an enormous number of boys named Maverick. That's that's a top 100 hit name today. There's been a real di divergence in naming styles today. And I think we should, you can almost think of there being a before and after in American baby names. Up until the late 60s, it was all about fitting in. Since then, it's more been more about standing out. And particularly since the 90s, since the rise of the internet, where everybody has to have a unique username. And since also in the mid-90s, we've started publishing lists of popular baby names. Rankings are really motivating, but in reverse. No one wants to be number one, and parents are looking for rarer and rarer names. It seems also that people are deriving names from popular culture. I assume that has some uh, connection to the, the prevalence of the name Maverick. But um, And I'm wondering about that. You get a, like a Game of Thrones name and you're Arya. And, you know, we just listened to a wonderful, beautiful spiritual being, Davida Foy Crabtree, talk about the message her name sent to her. But even you know, if your name is Arya, you, you know, the message is you should be killing people with swords or something. I, I'm just sort of wondering, does do we think that the pop culture baggage of some of these names then attaches to the new holder of the name? I'm sure it does. And it's a big change in the way we choose to honor celebrities. There have always been celebrity baby names. Shirley Temple had a bigger effect on baby names than any celebrity today. But back then, parents would have proudly said, yes, my child is named 
after Shirley Temple. Today, it's really not about the fame, it's about the name. So no matter what the character does, if they have a cool name, parents will choose it. And a, a great example is Kylo Ren from Star Wars, uh, which not to give any spoilers, but there, there could be no worse name you would think to give your son than Kylo Ren. Uh, if you, you know the relationship he ended up having with his father. But that name has been a huge hit, whereas more positive characters didn't hit the same way. Well, I'm very worried about the human race when you tell me something like that. So there are other names that kind of get strangely, I wouldn't say poisoned, I guess, but maybe dinged up a little bit. And and one of them, you know, we've recently run into a couple of times uh, people named Alexa. Uh, and we can just start with the fact that if you say the person's name in the presence of one of those infernal machines, you, you, you start a process. I mean, can you say a little bit about that? What, what does that do to people? Alexa is actually a very sad story. Other names have gone out of fashion because of negative associations with perhaps a, a celebrity who ran into a scandal. But never before has a corporation taken charge of a name and turned it into really a, a term of servitude. It's not just a name, it's a command. And I've heard a lot of really sad stories of parents whose kids don't want to go into school because all the other kids try to give them orders. It shows that as artificial intelligence rises and as the line between a product and a person becomes blurrier, I think companies really have to be careful about how they name those products. So meanwhile, uh, as you suggested earlier in our conversation, some of the most familiar names, maybe because they were so familiar, are out of favor and out of fashion. Although, I mean, so my son, my son was named Joseph, uh, and he's Joe or Joey or whatever. But I mean, one reason we gave him that name was you could do a lot with that name, and it doesn't really come with a whole lot of specificity because it's a common name and it's a biblical name and stuff like that. Apparently, that's not considered a virtue anymore. You have to have a name like Maverick that you know has all this specificity to it. I think parents almost see it as, as a competitive marketplace. If you picture that you're naming children and bringing children into a competitive marketplace, you're vying for shelf space. And so you want something bright and eye-catching. Whereas in fact, historically, you'll see that a name like Joseph or Joe turns out to stand a child in good stead because it's not controversial. The problem is the more distinctive, the more something stands out, the greater the number of people who will actively dislike it. And I think going forward, we're going to see that's going to become a problem. Kylo, Kylo Ren, you get off that slide right now. See, that just doesn't seem uh, like a good idea. Well, Laura Wattenberg, this is fascinating stuff, and you've been a wonderful guest, uh, and uh, you have a very nice name, uh, naming expert and author of The Baby Name Wizard and creator of Namerology.com. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Colin. And we're getting ready to go now, but please don't name your child Kylo Ren. Lily, you don't, no, no, not no Kylo Ren. No, no Star Wars <laughs> Let's rule Star Wars names out entirely. All right. We have to go. Uh, we'll be back with another show tomorrow. 